Welcome to the Story Forward podcast, uh, season two playlist. Who are you? Who are you? Stories <laughs> from the world of music. <laughs> I am one of your hosts. That's who I am. Oh, it's like on my Zoom screen in a plaid shirt. <laughs> I am Larry Rosen, always in a plaid shirt. He is, of course, never, well, sometimes in a plaid shirt, Mr. Christian. Wind. I used to wear a little more plaid. The pandemic has me more like a t-shirt guy. It's kind of been like, Christian, yeah. uh, the co-founder of the Story Fort Arts Festival, Literary Festival. Literary Storytelling Festival. Yeah, co-founder and director. And we're here, though, with our Story Forward podcast, season two. This is our second episode of season episode two. two. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the first episode where we delved into the world of rock and roll love. As we talked uh, during the intro on that episode, this season, we're talking all about stories that come from the world. Let's be honest, the world of rock and roll. It's really not the world of music. It's the world of rock and roll. This yeah. week, we have a, a rock and roll lifer, really. David Barbie is, has been called an Athens, Georgia legend. He was there at the beginning. Uh, he got to Athens, Georgia in 1981 as a college freshman, which was, I think at that point in time, REM had put out their first EP. And Athens was on the, it was at this place where it was kind of bubbling up and getting ready to explode, right? Well, David's been there for the whole thing. In the 80s, he played in bands. Uh, I guess the, the, the best known was, was called Mercyland. And he uh, played with them. They, they were kind of regional favorites. In the 1990s, though, he ended up playing with Bob Mould's band Sugar. Which is uh, a big deal. Which That's is a very big deal. Yeah. And he can tell you stories about playing in front of like 60,000 people at some crazy festival in Denmark or something. But during all of this, and this is what I think is most interesting about David's story, is that he always kept in mind that he wanted to spend his life in and around music and he wanted to find a way to do that. So simultaneously with playing in bands, he began engineering records and producing records. And in 1997, he opened Chase Park Transduction Studios, his own studio. And since 1997, he's produced every Drive-By Truckers album, albums by Sunvolt, KD Lang, R.E.M., Deer Hunter, Betty Levette. A lot of these bands are regional favorites that we may not know as much about, but some of them obviously we all know about. Since 2010, another little uh, turn that his career took he has been the director, well in 2010 he was the interim director, in 2011 he became the permanent director of the University of Georgia Music Business Certificate Program. Aside of all that, David Barbie is a storyteller. I know him, I play Stratomatic Baseball with him. What is Stratomatic Baseball, real quick? For it's a home. very nerdy baseball board game based on statistics from major leaguers from past seasons. David Barbie calls it uh, Dungeons and Dugouts and that it does come with 20-sided dice. We have our league we play in uh, via Zoom. And it's, I mean, if you're a dork like I am, it's really fun. He's he a, is a, a I would coach say, Little League too. I think he's a Little League he's coach. president of the Little League. President. Uh, he loves, he loves right. baseball and music and water skiing. And, and the Braves. The Braves, he's very Braves. happy right now. We think we get into that. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, probably, he's the first, I think, of a series, tell me if I'm being accurate here, of rock on tours that we will have on the Story Forward podcast this year. We've, we've banked a bunch mm -hmm. of these interviews already. And every time we go, we say it's gonna go 20 minutes and it goes 40, because these guys are great storytellers. Maybe 50. Maybe 50. <laughs> we have a couple that went, but we have an editor for such things too. So. Yeah, but David is foremost among them. Um, so we're gonna have an interview with him. And then after that, Tell, tell everyone about our correspondent, uh, Mr. Wynn. Yes, Mr. Kevin Mazzarelli, who is the head of production for Duck Club, which is the production company that 
operates year round um, with Tree Ford crew or a number of the Tree Ford crew. Kevin's awesome. He's worked in the business forever and he's currently kind of getting this whole brand new venue going in Boise, Idaho, the Tree Ford Music Hall. And he's been around bands like the Brian Jonestown Massacre. He worked at CBGB's. He lived in New York and Brooklyn and all around. That has some crazy, crazy stories he's going to bring to us. And that'll be a bit of a surprise because currently, at the moment we record this, he's uh, not yet given us his tape. So it's going to be a surprise for us, but it's going to be really great. And Kevin's fantastic. And uh, yeah, so we have him. And Mr. Barbie was really interesting. I had never met him before. We actually sat down in the Zoom zone um, and super kind and really generous with his storytelling. And we did get into sort of the idea of like walking into a scene, like you mentioned, in 1981, he kind of walked in at the perfect time in a lot of ways for a, yeah. a burgeoning you want to be i guess at that time musician i was curious larry like if you could walk into a scene let's say you know you were you know you're 21 22 you're you're a left-handed guitar slinger and you <laughs> want to like you know get into the business and you're like what scene would you have walked wanted to walk into it yeah yeah I, I, you, so you, you sprung this on me before we started recording and i, I knew immediately what my answer was going to be I don't think I would, I'm not sure if I would ever walk into a music scene as a means of a career. However, I did kind of walk into the Seattle one and try to make a career, not as a musician, but as a, as a journalist. And at the time I thought, well, this is perfect timing, though my timing was actually, I got there a year too late. Um, Cause by the time I got there, it wasn't like the people who were famous were guys that I had known since before they were famous, they were already famous. The other guys, the B-list guys I knew. But no, uh, my choice, my answer to your question is I would have moved to Austin, Texas in the mid 80s. Oh. And probably and never thought of it as a way to make a career, but more a way to spend your 20s. Like how great, because they were playing the kind of music I liked. Um, it seemed like a very low barrier to entry. You know, that's, I think one of the most important things is if I can go there and work in a restaurant two nights a week and sleep on a couch, Hmm. That's I'm in. And as you know, I do like plaid shirts. Yeah. A lot of people were wearing plaid shirts. Yeah. It just seemed like a great deal. And in fact, after I left Seattle the first year and I went to Boston and I failed and <laughs> I was going to come back, I had more than a fleeting thought that, you know what? I could just get on a bus and go to Austin. It was 1988, yeah. 89. No, it was 89. I was like, it's still happening in Austin. I could just get on a bus and go to Austin and just start over. So who, all right, so what bands were, I mean, I'm thinking of like Spoon at Boston. Who else? Spoon was, was after that. So okay. my, favorite, my favorite band at the time was an Austin band. They were called the Reavers and they didn't oh, really yeah, do Reavers. anything. Yes. And, then, and like most of my favorite bands from my youth, you got to look them up now. And one's a kindergarten teacher and one's a paralegal and one, you know. Mm. But that was sort of the precursor of that Americana stuff. Right. And that's the kind of music I like. And that's where it was. And I always thought, I don't know. I mean, this isn't a popular thing to say in 2021, but I always thought Texas was really cool. Do you have one? You said you did, right? You do. Well, yeah. I mean, it was interesting that we met in Seattle during the kind of the, in the 88. Um, and that was kind of the rise of the grunge scene. And I, I was in some, into some journalism in the, uh, at the college level, the university level at Seattle Pacific. I was an editor and a writer, well, but I didn't know. Really, that said, kind of during that time for me, I was got into sort of the Brit pop. Well, that's and, right. Yes, very much so. A good friend of ours, Scott Morell, and another one, David Estes, and 
Oh, just some of the folks I went to undergrad with, we all, or most of us got into sort of the shoegazy kind of Brit pop, like a Manchester scene. So I was like, I think for me, if I was just hanging out, like you said, maybe I would have gotten into maybe a little too much ecstasy or something. I don't know. Um, but back, you know, they were out of there. There's like New Order, Happy Mondays, and Spiral Carpets, who we saw in Seattle in this surprise show um, that was amazing. And then this band James and the Charlatans, which maybe became the Charlatans UK. Um, but just kind of the gloom, the floppy hair, the kind of... Yeah, just, the big that, sweaters. Yeah, I could see that for you guys. It seemed like a good thing for a while. I mean, I've, got, I've grown out of that, though I still listen to that music. I've done, I don't know that... So really, I thought of Athens as a pretty cool place to be, too. Yeah, but when you talk about, like, wanting to go somewhere and be experience a music scene from its birth, are you talking about the music or the scene? I would say the Manchester scene, but I did love the music, too. So, I mean, I, and I don't know... It would have probably... Manchester... Could have been a little tough to to, mm. to feel. I don't know. American in uh, in Manchester might not have been the best, but if I was a British kid, kind of with floppy hair and doing the you thing, had the floppy hair. I did, did have floppy see, hair. Did you ever see Twenty Four Hour Party People? I did. Yep. Mm. Yep. You would have been one of them. I know, and that was even like a little bit on the latter part for me. You know, I think the mm -hmm. Happy Mondays and all. I know. You know, it was great, you know, but that music in that era, because we lived in Seattle, kind of gloomy also, and I was becoming an adult and we were hanging out at clubs and thought we were, were fashioning ourselves as writers and artists and thinkers. And I just, you know, that seemed like that scene, you know, definitely appealed to me, kind of like, you know, in literature, I was into sort of the expats. You know, in college, I tried to make the, in college, I tried to make the San Jose scene happen. I was convinced <laughs> it was going to happen. There was, there was an album, there was a bunch of bands that never really went anywhere except one of them, I think eventually turned into, what's the band with the fat guy, Steve Harwell, who's, who had to oh, the, the, the blues traveler? No, no. <laughs> no, okay. Um, hey, now you're an all-star, that bad. Oh. I, is, I get them mixed up with, with the Mark McGrath. Oh my gosh, yeah. Anyways, know this, that guy was, you know. that guy was there. Okay. Yeah, like I was there, but for, for my senior smash college, mouth? that's not smash, smash mouth. mouth. Yes, smash, smash, really called okay. smash mouth. But he was okay. there. I tried to make that happen. I really like the idea of a more random place hosting a music scene. Yeah, when I moved to Boise in the late '90s mm. out of Seattle, I was like, this would be a perfect place for a music scene. Yep. And it was, you know, built to spill, obviously around and big, but, and there was, you know, tree people kind of connected and there. I mean, I'm not an old school Boise guy, so I'm probably going to get some, uh, we'll get some, some uh, letters, as they it's say, from people who, from the five people who listen um, to our podcast, but, um, oh, <laughs> I should, I shouldn't say that out loud, but no, no yeah, but I always thought that Boise was right for it and really in the, you know, in the aughts and into you know where we are now in the 2021 22 time with tree floor coming along and this duck club stuff that uh, mr mazzarelli is involved with that's a burgeoning scene and i think i don't know if it has i don't know if scenes happen quite the same way we've talked about that yeah i don't know if they do and unfortunately we could talk about this forever but let's not forget yeah. we have a 45 minute interview oh yes he's he's his mr barbie's you know sort of storytelling is contagious i guess we want to keep yep. it going but all right well, what do you have to say to lead us in i got nothing to say other than you know uh I, I don't know what your southern beverage of choice is but grab one sit on the rocking chair and listen to david barbie tell stories he will transport you enjoy it all right david i'm going to start with a quote actually uh from chuck reese from the bitter southerner an article i think it's maybe five or six years old 
that he said about you, and this really struck me. Of all the aspiring musicians I knew in 80s era Athens, David Barbie was among the few who knew exactly what he loved, then slowly built a life that paid him to do it. Now that, I don't see any, any arg I don't have any argument with that quote. What I wanna focus on first uh, from that though is, what made you decide that was the world that you loved, music? Um, you know, my dad, who was a lifelong professional musician as well, told me his one of his favorite sayings was music's not a calling it's an affliction sure. if it's what you do you cannot get away from it and um i've just was you know both my parents were musicians and so i was always around it and um i just love it so much and i love the people that make it and the people that are involved in it and um you know it probably didn't hurt that i was raised around it you know i was never around people that had like regular jobs they always seemed kind of like uh like uh scary to me as a child and uh like my, the other kids dads like always seemed like kind of like foreboding and uh but i just love it and um i it's i don't know i can't explain it i mean it's like it's just a thing i love you know it's just in my blood We'll talk a little bit more about growing up with parents who are musicians because yeah. your parents were fairly prominent musicians and i was yeah. trying to explain to chris your mom was the time lady too wasn't she yeah so <laughs> the story as briefly as i can spit it out is um, my dad was a musical composer and arranger and my mom was a singer and an actress and a voice talent and so my dad grew up in new york and then uh was always his whole life all he wanted to do was play the clarinet like benny goodman and write music and um, he got drafted and went to the Pacific in the, at the end of World War II. And after a couple of years, got out and went to Juilliard and the GI Bill. He was a native New Yorker. And then he was like playing big band jazz all through the 50s. And my mom went to UGA um, as a drama major and then was kind of like working at one thing or another around Atlanta and maybe lived in Birmingham for a while, I think in the 50s. And um, she got on with this band as a singer in the late 1958 and uh she was the evening gown wearing ingenue and my dad played baritone sax and was a tour manager and that's how they met and they lived in new york for a couple of years and they first got married my dad is writing music up there and my mom had an audition to do a voiceover for a commercial at the tv station where my dad was in like the house band it's the weirdest thing and um she didn't get the audition, but they called I me. Mean, she didn't get the job, but they called her in after her audition and said, you know, you lost to um, the number one voice talent for commercials in New York. You were number two. And um, who it was was the actress that we all, people our age know as Madge, the Paul Mall of dishwashing okay. liquid, lady, oh. whatever her name is, was okay. the actress that got the spot. And they said, you know, your husband told us you might be moving to Atlanta. And so like you, um, you know, you have a future doing this if you're interested in like, you could really make a go of in Atlanta. There's, I mean, you're not competing with people like that. And so they did, they moved to Atlanta in their 62, I think. And um, Jarrah was born. And um, my dad was writing and arranging everything he played a ton of commercial jingles and then like all these he was involved either arranging or playing on all these atlanta pop records of the 60s like joe south and billy joe royal and tommy rowe and the tams and uh then um my mom was singing on commercials and acting voice and uh tv commercials but she also picked up this gig for a company called autocron that put the voices on 
um, the uh, every telephone system in the English speaking world, such as the time, the temperature, the wrong number. Let, down, let Fulton Federal Savings refinance your home loan. Downtown temperature, 58. Time, 513. So my mom was Siri before Siri. She was the world's most heard recorded voice, more than Elvis, Johnny Hit, Johnny Carson, Hitler, the Beatles, all of them, probably all of them combined. And um, she did that for about 40 years. And so like, I grew up going to recording studios to listen to Coke and Delta commercials or um, uh, some, something my dad might have scored for like a small film or my mom doing radio commercials. I did a couple of commercials with her when they needed a kid. I love, to the, be idea. I love the idea. I, of my, my whole life was like recording studios and concerts and musician jokes and yeah. I love the idea of, of maybe you like during the, during the van tour days, like waking up at four o'clock in the morning on a floor somewhere really lonely and knowing you could call on the weather and hear your mom's voice. If I hear yeah. it now, I might, I might get too misty to continue. Yeah. How did that work? I'm curious, like real quick, like how did that actually work back in the day? I remember calling for the time back in my, you know, my youth. Oh, well, we're, like, we're, at dinner and we're at dinner and the phone rings and my mom picks it up. That's a good question, Christian. She'd go in once a year and re-record all the numbers. At the tone, the time will be one. At the tone, the time will be two, and then count from o'clock up to fifty-nine, and uh -huh. then um, because you couldn't have um, the voice telling you what time it is, and that it's fifty-eight degrees outside, being from nineteen sixty-three, and then the voice telling you to refinance your home loan or save money on your power bill by converting to Georgia Power, being from nineteen eighty-seven. So she would redo, and there's also, she did computers and airports and uh, internal te uh, corporate telephone systems. People hired her to play elaborate pranks on other people. Um, <laughs> she was on all kinds of like quiz shows, like our guest has a job that everyone in this audience knows. Let's see if our celebrity panelists can say, can figure out who it is. And they show she's the voice for the time and temperature on the, on the telephone. You're, oh, and Mrs. Barbie, now would we be, are you a recording artist? Well, I am, I do recording. I don't know that anyone would call what I do artistry. And the audience laughed. It was just like, so all that shit. It's just a we. I mean, to me, it was like that's what my mom did. But it, like, looking back, it's like, where's your mom, David? It's like she can't pick me up at school. She's in Philadelphia being on the Mike Douglas show today. Well, that's, uh, that's a good segue. Then, um, sort of downsides. Were they not home? Did they tour? Was it a, a, a sort of a, a predictable childhood? Yeah, very much so. They were home. It's like they stopped. They got off the road in '60 to get married, and they did. And then. Um, they wanted to have a family and so they moved to Atlanta and um, we lived in what's now referred to as Midtown but at the time it's just known as Atlanta and so my you know jingle sessions are during the daytime at studios and my dad would stay up late at night writing music my dad I never saw my dad before like 10 o'clock in the morning when I was a kid my mom got up every day and you know, made me a, this is insane because most people now, their kids like they get to eat cereal or a protein bar or something. But I was served, of course, I'm totally spoiled. I was served a delicious, different, hot meal every day of my life, except Saturday, which I would get up and pound Captain Crunch or Fruit Loops into my face and stare at violent cartoons all morning. Um, 
Sundays with their waffles or pancakes. Monday through Friday could be a mix of things. It's um, and so my mom worked. My mom came from an incredibly disruptive childhood, and um, so she really went out out of her way to um, make sure that we had stability and that she was up every morning. Unless you knew, if my dad got up in the morning to make us breakfast, he knew my mom was sick because she'd get up every morning, make us breakfast, take us to school, and then in the afternoons, by the time we were about, it seems like the time I was about nine or so there'd be a good chance that it's like the session's running late, let yourself in the house, make a snack, do your homework. So I would let myself in the house, make a snack, fuck around, look at baseball cards, watch cartoons for a while, play with my Hot Wheels, wait for the door to open and then scramble like I'm actually been doing my homework the whole time. So it it was a pretty normal childhood, really. Let's jump ahead uh, when you moved to Athens to go to college. At this point, what is your dream? Well, it's interesting. At this point, I would like to hope that by the time I was 17, when I moved to Athens to go to college, that I was, um, that my dream in life wasn't to either be Mick Jagger or Hank Aaron, but I'm not sure that I'd probably steep back in the back of my head. It probably was that I was going to do one of those two things. Um, But seriously, what I wanted to do was be a journalist. I wrote for the high school newspaper. I loved doing that. And um, I was already playing in bands. I'd been playing in bands from the time I was about, I mean, the first time I played in a band, a amplified rock band and made money, I was 12 years old. My band played at somebody's party and I got paid 10 bucks and we made like an album that, that I recorded in my basement and it's my first production job and uh, yeah. sold cassettes at school. Uh, so I was really into it, but I wasn't thinking of music as a career. That's what my parents did. I was going, I was really into uh, writing. And so um, I went to UGA to get a journalism school and there was all kinds of things related to that that seemed of interest to me. Maybe I would write for the newspaper. Maybe I would be a baseball announcer. I could combine two things I love there. Maybe I would be like, you know, uh, Dave Marsh or Lester Bangs or somebody, you know, I don't know, write about rock music. I don't think I had a very clear picture. I was probably very much living the life in front of me because I graduated high school going to Georgia, which had a great, still does have a great top-notch journalism school, one of the best in the country. And it was awfully affordable compared to the other hotshot journalism schools around the country, which are out of state. And as my dad was always very clear with me, there's no scholarships or retirement and that I had best start working hard if I want to go to college. (laughs) Let's let's segue here. I know Christian was really interested in this too, in the world that he stepped into in Athens, Georgia, 1980-81. Specifically, you know, what was going on then? And was that world, music world there, did that help nudge you in the direction of music? Uh, it's, it's the yeah. dumbest talk in the history of the world. My entire life has been, I, I walk up to the corner and the bus pulls up and the door opens and it's I, my approach has always been, that looks cool, let's do that. So um, I was totally into music, totally, totally into it, right? And uh, whether I knew it was going to be my life's work or not, it was like, it's just absorbed all of my time. I mean, the I can think of like certain ages in my life and what I regarded at that point as music I obsessively listened to, and uh, at certain ages, you know, and or older kids turning me on to something, and um, so when I came into UGA, which was the fall of '81, um, I entered a world where, as a sports fan, I knew we had Herschel Walker. And had just they had dogs in the national championship. And as 
a basketball fan, I knew that we had Dominique Wilkins, who was a couple of years in school. Herschel's one year ahead of me in school, and Dominique was two years ahead of me in school. And you'd see him playing like pickup games in the gym. And the music scene, I knew about the B-52s. Like I had that first B-52s record, which is so awesome, and knew that they were from Athens. And because we didn't have other words to describe these things, we weren't subgenre yet. We in in Atlanta, we considered the beat. There's a punk rock band in B-52s. <laughs> and of course, it's like you think back now, and it's like punk rock what do you call punk rock what yeah do you mean? by that but it was not like journey or sticks or something it's like one thing is true right. all the way through high school i was not into a lot of the current stuff um the stuff that was really popular when i was in high school that i did really like was springsteen yep uh zeppelin but they were about done the current output of the rolling stones should have been like some girls yeah we were really into that petty yeah, uh, Damn the Torpedoes, sure. ACDC, every record sounds the same, but like we didn't really know about like the Sex Pistols, you know, we just knew they were a thing that existed. Uh -huh. We weren't that cool, but we were also, me and my friends, not at all into like this highly processed corporate rock of the late 70s music that I still think is terrible 40 years later. Uh -huh. And, um, or just it doesn't appeal to me. I'll put it there. You on, go. On, yeah. Let's yeah. Go. Were you, I'm curious, were you like, conscious of like the scene happening was Athens like oh this is the place to be yeah. or yeah so here's how that happened for me so I lived in the dorm and um I would see these cool looking people that looked like they had landed from another planet that was like the 60s walking and I was like what's their deal where are they going what did they what do they do in fact there's a little pack of them that would walk across there's a this quad outside of my dorm and it was the Reed Quad. And so we would always refer to them as the Reed Airplane, like the Jefferson Airplane. Like, where are they going? What do they do? <laughs> and so um, I, two things happened, like bam, bam, back to back. One is I heard the REM Ready for Europe single, which was like, as soon as I heard it, it's like, this is a kind of music that exists in my head that I've never known existed in reality. Did you know they were local at the time? Yes, that's why I listened. I'd heard that and was and and I figured out that my childhood next door neighbor and babysitter Johnny Hibbert must be who put that record out because I knew that he and his brother Henry were, were punk rockers in Atlanta, new wave scene guys, and was on Hib Tone record and the publishing was listed as Dorothy Jane and Music, which is a highly polarizing episode in the REM history. Is this whole single and him owning the publishing? He doesn't anymore. Um, but um, so I went to see REM play in a club, but I wasn't freshman. It was right at the beginning of my sophomore year. I mean, you're, my freshman year, I'm kind of figuring out going to classes, uh, $1.50 pitchers of beer, uh, just what, you know, living away from home, whatever. And, um, but right at the beginning of my sophomore year, that Chronic Town had just come out and I saw REM play in a club and it blew my mind how incredible they were and it also like there's a level between me playing a keg party with my friends and the who playing a basketball arena sure. because it's like how do you get there like how do you go from being 
keg party to basketball arena. What what happens? And so once I saw an indie rock club packed full of people, and they were really hell on wheels at that time. Anytime you see any footage or hear a live recording or for me that I do from that era, I, I think I'd be just as blown away today as I was then when I saw them play. They're still the, that era are even one of the best bands I've ever seen in my whole life. Let me ask you, so did you ever have a sense then that not only are they the best band I've ever seen in my life, but they're from here? Did that yeah. make it seem more doable? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It made it seem completely doable. So I was immediately just like, into, okay, now I have to find other places to go. So the Red and Black's a school paper, and I saw a picture in the Red and Black of a band called the Little Tigers playing at this place called the 40 Watt Club that was a little bitty place at the time. And um, in the picture was a guy named Evan Lieberman. Now, Dr. Evan Lieberman, the uh, the film studies professor at Cleveland State University. We are in touch. And I knew him because when I was about 12, I played with this hot shot lead guitarist named Claude Garner, who was about 14. And he knew some older kids and they needed a guitar player and they needed a drummer. And so I came with the deal. And so it was these all these older dudes who were probably like seniors in high school. I'm very much like the kid in um, Dazed and Confused. Sure. And so... It's like I'm, I've gone from playing Little League to playing drums with these guys that like this is whatever summer Blue Oyster called Agents of Fortune had just come out because they're in the basement listening to Blue Oyster Cult and smoking dope and drinking Annie Green Springs and wild Russian Vanya wine and like making out with girls and things. And I'm just like, sit behind the drums. Don't say anything. Just be cool. You can't be uncool if you don't say anything stupid. Therefore, just observe and don't get picked on. And uh, so years later, I see Evan's picture in the red and black playing this band. And it's like, I'm going to go see this, his band. And so I walked into this place. And what I walked into was a room designed to hold 50 with about 80 people in there, all crammed in together, sweating and dancing. And it was, and then there's the, the Reed airplane. There's all those kids I see in the dorm right down front, get into, and it was like, this is where all the cool people go. And it's, I just had this feeling as soon as I was in that club around other people, it was like, these are my people. This is my tribe. This is what I'm supposed to hang out with. It's like the music people. And so I was like hook, line, and sinker right away. And I was going to sing every band that would come through Athens. Okay. And I so was totally point, into it. At that point, you found your world, you decide you want to be part of it. What's your plan? Um, well, it's interesting. I started playing in a band with these dudes I went to high school with because I was a drummer, but they needed a bass player. And I couldn't play the bass, but they had books in studio time and they didn't like any other people that they knew who played the bass. And they said, hey, we booked this studio time because it felt like a deal on studio time in Atlanta. Do you want to play the bass on our recording? It's like, well, there's a couple of problems here. <laughs> I don't uh, have a bass. They're like, what if we get you one? Well, I don't know how to play the bass. I've never played it before. It's like, well, what if we show you what to play? I was like, okay, if you get me the equipment and show me what to play, do I want to go to a recording studio and play on your recording session? Sure. Um, and I think that they got me because like, I was into music seriously. I had a ton of records they liked. Um, and you know, I would probably go along with whatever they told me to do. And, you know, I'm musical enough, like everybody in music, people have their 
everybody, no matter what you do, you have people that have their strengths and their weaknesses. Everybody's got their game, whether you're a brain surgeon or a point guard or a musician, you've got something that you do that's your specialty. Um, I'm not a chops guy. I'm never going to play like a blazing guitar solo. If I practice every day for the rest of my life, it's not going to happen. Um, but um, I have what I've, well, like I observed so many people in the studio over the years, I, my strength is I have what I think of as innate musicality, meaning I feel music, I can pick things up quickly. I played that Treasure Islands Festival in San Francisco with Bob Mould, um, including playing when he was his bass player went into labor and I just flew to San Francisco like the day of the festival and, sh and, my, and showed up and just said, okay, just write the first note of every the sugar songs. I probably remember having muscle memory, like, yeah, good idea. And then you'll do the thing with your foot at the end and let me know we're done. Yeah. Okay, cool. I got it. Um, needle hits E bridge modulates up to the, uh, like a C sharp minor and then straight across to the five, and then down to, it's like, yeah, I got that one. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And these Husker songs just put the first note down and I got it. And they were like, have you played those Husker songs before? I was like, no, I don't need to. I've listened to them a million times. Like if, if, if it was like a Beatles song or Rolling Stone song, you said, or Bob Dylan song or something. It's like, Hey, here's the first note. I could pick up a bass and, and I, I, I got it. I could do it. I didn't have that, know that at the time, but these guys, I think that from high school, I like, realized it's like David's musical. He's a cool dude. We like to hang out with. He likes records that we like and we hate the other dudes and he'll do what we tell him to. He's very agreeable. So I was playing in this band and then started booking my crummy band into playing shows with hoping to play with the cool bands was just like did that and played when then would pick up play with other people and whatever and just was hanging out all the time i believed at that time that we in the athens music scene because rem was so important and was really on the way up i mean it is the dumbest luck in the world for me to land there in athens if i was five years older it would have been sleepy it would have been the same thing as going to oxford or uh, not in England, I mean, Mississippi or Columbia, South Carolina or Gainesville or someplace, you know, and if it had been five years later, the scene would have been so developed. I would have, it would have been hard to break in, but I just, you know, walked in at a great time and um, was so absorbed into the scene. I believed that we in the music scene were all going to be doing this for the rest of our lives because that's who we are. We're all into this. And what I didn't realize at the time is that, um, in college music scenes, there's two kinds of people. There's mugs and lifers. Mug stands for music until graduation. And uh, which is like, it's like a lot of things. People are going to have their groovy character they're into while they're in college. And then they're going to graduate and either they're freaked out about money and need to get a steady job. They're not any good at it. And that becomes apparent. Life punches them in the face with reality somehow, whatever. But at the time, I believed that me... And the Kilkenny Cats and Fashion Battery and the Tragic Dancers and all these other bands that don't haven't existed in a long, long time. We're all doing this for our life because I just somehow knew it's like this. These are my people. This is what I'm doing. And so a couple of years after that is when I started Mercyland with two guys from other bands that I thought were cool. And then I kind of had it going on. Then I had something I was really into and proud of, and that was uh, went from hoping I could play shows with the cool bands to feeling like, oh man, I'm like in one of the cool bands. So, yeah. Forward again though, um, I wanna take you up to your late twenties now when you've been right. in Mercy Land, um, but you're married and you have a couple kids. And yeah. I think- Yeah, oh, it's funny, I'm, we're about to put these Mercy Land reissues out. So I'm sitting at a table with all these like 
band pictures and things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I played in Mercyland from the time I was 21 until I was, let's see, Valentine's Day 91, I was 27. And by this point, like we knew about six months in advance, this isn't going to work. Like we've had so many close calls. If we'd gotten something when we, the, by 87, like a year and a half into playing our band, we're playing, going to, going up the east coast and playing the 930 and dc and the cbgb and all these places and the rat it's like it looks like things are really 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 going to take off for us and then close calls on indie record deals close calls on major label record deals it's not happening and you just realize it's like you better get you got to catch the wave at the right spot is you know it's like if you let it go too long the air starts to go out of the balloon your time has passed, whatever. And I just realized it's like, I was married, I had a baby and it's like, and we just, it was just time for us to do different stuff. So yeah. So this is myself in early 91, my band had broken up. I was, was driving a delivery truck for Kinko's copies and had also still may have had like been in the mode. Now at this point, I'm just probably working at Kinko's all the time for a couple of, for several years. It's like, I had a ton of odd jobs to support my music habit, you know? And mm -hmm. um, when I graduated Georgia, I've worked at a place called the Taco Stand in here. That's exactly what you think it is, you know? But anyway, so it's like, okay, I got to think about getting like a job now because I've got nothing. I love making music, but the fact is, is that I have pursued this as hard as a human being could pursue anything. And it hasn't worked out for to get me out of going to work when I'm not making music. And so it's like we had like records out and stuff, but it's like it just was like so many other people that are independent artists. It's like it's just not happening. I have a baby. I care more about her than I care about, you know, riding down the road in the van. And I told my dad, it's like, you know, man, I've done this as hard as I can. And I think it's time for me to maybe look into doing something else. And my dad said, I think you're being a little hasty. I was sure he was going to tell me, Hey, you've made a great effort at this. You worked as hard as you could. I'm proud of you for trying so hard, but yeah, you got a family. You should probably think about making some real money in the world and like supporting your family. Cause we also now we're pregnant with number two. And, um, astonishingly, my dad did not give me the advice of like, Hey, you've made a great effort, but I do think you're right. I think it's time to do something different with your life. Cause I'm at about that point, you know, that hump of your late twenties where it's either, I'm going to get on with this or I'm going to wind up like driving this delivery truck until I get some other shitty job after this one. So he said, I think you're being a little hasty. I think you ought to give it another year and see what happens to you. And over the course of that next year, about two weeks later, John Keen, who's produced all the widespread panic records and worked with REM and the Indigo girls and a bunch of legit records asked me if I wanted to learn how to be an engineer because I'd already been producing bands that is not knowing how any of the equipment works other than my four track cassette recorder. But like I was recording bands and be and all the time, like on my four track and going to the studio as a producer and working creatively making records. And, but I would go to John's who's the best engineer in town at the best studio. And I think that my primary role over there was arguing with him. And to his credit, you know, he, I think realized it's like, this guy's so into it and he has the skills. He just doesn't know the audio signal flow really. So, so were you into it from the start engineering and production? There are feelings in life where you feel like 
I got, there's sometimes it's like, Ooh, I'm out of place. There's other times there's this, um, here's a real tangent for you. There's a legend of uh, Canadian golfers in the fifties named Mo Norman. And what Mo Norman is famous for is being able to hit a golf ball further than any other human, like all these, like Ben Hogan and Sam Snead. Somebody gave me the book about the guy, not because I'm not into golf, but just because it's like a really interesting story. And this guy had, he never could master the short game. He could never master the behavior necessary to be like a real successful touring golf pro, even when that was a much looser world. But he could really hit a golf ball. And the book is called My Feeling of Greatness. Because Nemo Norman, that was what he liked to do. And the first time I was completely in charge in a recording studio and sitting at the chair with the equipment um, was like my honest to God thought, which I feel a little weird saying because it sounds so egotistical. But the fact is, when I first did it, my thought was, I'm a natural. I got it. And punching in on an analog tape machine when i went to the recording workshop that summer which is this crash course in ohio that lasts about six weeks that john got me to go to he said if you can go there and learn signal flow you can come back here i'll give you one free day of studio time show me what you can do and if you can do it i'll give you a key and alarm code you can book the weekends so i was like deal how do i put this did you feel at that point i could be better at this than i was at playing music i thought i could be better at this than i was at playing music and i thought i could be better at it than anybody else that i knew that did it I just had this, I mean, I'm not in the world, you know, I mean, I would like to think that, but the fact is just having been around studios, it was just like, you know what? I got this. I know, I know I can be good at this. I, I just feel it. And so I went up to the recording workshop to go to this school. And then I found out that they ranked the students at the end. And so as soon as I got up there, it's like, I'm going to write. There's only, I'm, uh -huh. you know, it's, um, I want to be, number one and so and i was and but the way i did it is i showed up the building opened at nine o'clock our classes started at nine or ten o'clock in the morning the janitors opened the building at seven i was down there every morning at 7 a.m with a real two-inch tape practicing and it was just like i'll beat everybody's ass at this because i'm gonna be but the other thing is i had a pregnant wife and a baby and it's like this is my chance to do something i love with my life and make a living hmm. what do you think i'm curious like what do you think it is that you had that the other people didn't have i mean besides the work ethic i mean what was that essence i suppose of just being able to pick up like the overall sound and just like know exactly where it needed to go or or what I, it's hard to say christian it's just like um there's you know there's basically three skills you got to have to be successful this in my opinion I told somebody this the other day who had really screwed up a session at the studio. One is you have to have the technical chops in the studio. And I was learning that at this school, but I was making a hundred at everything that I did. And so I felt good about my ability to understand, to process the technical aspect of this. Two, I'm going to break this into four skills because this is really two parts. Two, being innately musical is extremely helpful. That um, I, and it's not because I was raised by, you know, classically trained musician, I speak music too. And so it's like, I can talk to the snooty, you know, trained people because I understand that, but I have a feel for what works, right? It's just like a, anybody that's good at anything, like my wife's a tremendous cook. She has a good feel for it, you know? So it's like, there's that. So I had the engine, I knew I could master the technic, the technical side of this because I just felt like as I was learning it, I was really mastering it um 
the musicality, I knew I had that, even though I don't have great chops, I knew I had innately musical. The other two aspects are one, you got to be able to get your own business. And this isn't like a job at the power company or a bank where people just come in all the time. And the other thing is you got to have the soft skills with people in the studio to be able to relate to people on a human level. I just have always felt very comfortable with people. There are people that I know who are great engineers. They understand music boards and backwards. But when it comes to personalities, they got no game. They have no bed. Their bedside manner is like a wooden spoon. They're stiff. They're diff, they're awkward around people. It's I just felt comfortable in the studio. It was just like, you know, the story of Br'er Rabbit. That's my briar patch. Is as soon as I was, it's just like I can't even describe why it was that way, except just to realize like in all this musical stuff of wanting to do all this stuff, it's um it's interesting. It's like we all enter into our world through our concept of what that is from the outside, or through like some sort of hero worship. And it's like the Minutemen. Um, uh, I, Double Nickels and the Dime has a song called uh, "History Lesson Part Two, and uh, it's the story of the Minutemen. And part of the lyrics are, you know, I was Bob Dylan, you know, you know, E. Bloom, Eric Bloom of Blue Oyster Cult, ironically enough. Uh, John Doe and Mike Watt writing D Boone singing about like these were our heroes that we worshiped as we were learning how to be ourselves in this world. Those people, we admired them because of their uniqueness. We are finding ours by trying on their styles and personalities. And so I just realized that playing the bass, playing the guitar, playing the drums, writing songs, I love to, I still do all that stuff. I love it. It's all part of my job, part of my career still. But um, this was my feeling of greatness. This was the uh, this was the intersection of Mo Norman and Mike Watt that I just felt like felt like I had it. Okay, so you're on your way, but there comes you know as as an engineer and a producer, and eventually you're going to open your own studio. But there's a little interruption along the way. You end up playing bass in Sugar for four years. All happened at the same time. All happened in '91. Hmm. That's John a big interruption. That's a big yeah. job in itself. John Keane asked me if I wanted to be an engineer. Bob Mould asked me if I wanted to play in his band, and the Braves went worse to first. And my, <laughs> and my son Winston was born. What a year. So he didn't see that fax until after the game. It was So Bob Mould and I met because Bob got involved with a guy from Athens and they ended up having a long, long relationship together and they've been broken up for many years now. I mean, this is hell. This has all been a long time ago. So um, Bob and Kevin came and stayed in my house and I was a huge Husker fan. I'm sure Bob looked at my record collection when That's I was at work. He knows I'm a fan. And um, Bob, whenever he'd come through Athens, he'd always come by the house. We really hit it off. And um, we talked about, he talked about playing some music and together and i thought he meant like get together and like jam sometime i didn't think that bob mould who at the time and you know workbooks out he's a big deal and i drive a delivery truck and play in a failed punk rock band failing punk rock band. and just like i waited for uh mark craig to quit the kill kenny cats and harry joiner to quit fashion battery so i could ask them to start mercy land with me bob as soon as i was out of mercy land that's and i'm working in the studio Bob starts 
talking to me more and more and more, but I'm still not exactly sure what I'm being asked to do. And then just over, by that fall of 91, it's like, I want you to do this thing with me. I want, I'm going to start this new, I mean, I'm not playing the Anton and Tony anymore and I've got a new band I'd like to start and I'd like you to be in it. And I thought about it because it was like, I got to now I'm about to have two babies at home. I already swore off touring. I've got this promising thing happening at the studio. And it's interesting we should be talking about this now because I've just been going through a bunch of my dad's affairs who passed away in December last year ago, December. And um, I uh, found a letter. It's interesting that I wrote this news to my parents in a handwritten letter in 1991 instead of calling them on the phone to tell them. Yeah, it's almost like a Ken Burns documentary of my sure. life my dearest, my dearest mother as the days grow long <laughs> you know um i fear that we shall never get out of mathematics alive and uh so um but i wrote them this letter about how i was just got this offer to work at this recording studio and i thought that it was really promising opportunity and that i hoped that by the time i'm in my 40s maybe i could have my own studio it happened a lot sooner than that as it turns out um it's a very quaint letter to read now it's very it's, it's sure. nice but um and I thanked them for the books they had just sent to my two-year-old daughter. But um, I, uh, anyway, so what Bob came and played a solo show at the 40 lot. He said, let's sit down and talk about this. And I was like, okay, okay. So I was really went to the show and he's great. And it's like, you know, workbook and black sheets are both out and uh, he's a big deal. And we go after the show over to Peter Buck's house to talk and they're talking about going to Europe and this and that and the other and the life they lead and the high level they're in. And I'm like thinking about, do I have to get up at six and go to work tomorrow? And, but what I noticed is they both had brand new shoes. They both had things that I would later learn that those are Doc Martens, brand new classic black airwear Doc Martens. And the earlier that week I had told Amy, it's like, no, no shoes right now. It's like, let me, I got to get paid next week and then I'll pay this and then I'll pay that and I'll shuffle some money from here to there and I'll make, I mean, I made like $6 an hour. And it's like, then we'll get her shoes. She's not, well, she's going to outgrow them. I was like, well, she's not going to outgrow them in two weeks. All right. There are people in this world who don't have any shoes and would love to have a pair that needs to be replaced in two weeks. We got to do that. I'm sorry. That's, it's like, I'm, you know, I make $6 an hour, you know, bear with me here. And, uh, and so it's just like, these guys get a new pair of shoes anytime that they want to. And essentially it's like, this could be the career break that makes my whole life. And Amy was totally supportive of it. She had said, you know, if you don't go play with Bob, you'll kick yourself for the rest of your life about it. Mm -hmm. and, so, and I think the only two people at the time that could have gotten me to leave home and go do that are probably Bob Mould and Neil Young. And so I did it. And so I told John at the studio, it's like, Hey, I'm real sorry. I know I told you I'd be here every weekend, but this is a good opportunity, but I think it'll help my career. And I think when I'm not touring, I think I'll still be able to work, which began uh, one of the most insane three year runs of my life, three and a half years from, you know, late 91 through February of 95, which um, was just a whirlwind of, Go make a sugar record. You're gone for four or five weeks. Come home, make an, like 10 indie records. Record comes out. Go to England. Come home for two weeks. Make three records. Go to uh, England again for a longer tour. Come home for two weeks. Yeah, it's somebody's birthday. Make three records. Go on tour. Go do the U.S. for four weeks. Come home uh, for a week in between. Go to the studio. Hang out with your kids. 
go to the West Coast for a couple of weeks, come home for Thanksgiving. Yay, we did that. Uh, didn't realize we had just impregnated ourselves. Well, I impregnated her. Let's make it clear here. With uh, number three, go to Germany, uh, we'll tour Europe until Christmas, home for three weeks, go to Japan for three weeks. And now I'm off in the beginning of 93. I had two months off, at which point I made record, 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 record. And I'm freelancing in all these studios because I don't have my own place. And John's busy making Watch for Panic record. So that was what it was like for like three years. It was insane. Did you ever have a chance during that run to look out at the audience and go, holy crap, I'm playing in front of 11,000 people? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have, maybe it's not down here. I have this amazing picture somewhere that is um uh of me and bob on stage at uh terhoot uh or worked or one of the two fest belgian festivals with like <laughs> fifty thousand people wow um but like the but it was like right away like i assumed that Bob, it was that life was just like this for him all the time. I didn't realize until later on that Sugar was much, much bigger than Who's Could Do and much, yeah. much bigger than um, uh, um, than his solo stuff. And Larry, when you and I met at the Warfield, was that 92 or 94? 92. Okay. Hmm. Give me 10 seconds. I'm going to walk over here and show you a picture taken about <laughs> five minutes after you and I met the first time. <laughs> Probably my favorite picture of sugar. I don't know how your ears still work because mine don't after that show. <laughs> this was in, in San Francisco? Our, yeah. Okay, this is... Um, the we offer in the picture? These two guys are the two... Um, remember, John, they might be giants. Over here, as Tony oh. Mamone of Ubu. And um, three of us, and then yes, Jello Biafra with a high sign over Bob's head, and he's wearing a fucking <laughs> Spiro Agnew t-shirt. Of course he is, yes. <laughs> you know, I remember about Jello Biafra from that show, because we got to go backstage, and Jello Biafra was wearing the same weird Levi's that my junior high school Spanish teacher wore. He was also, you know, what I was aware of meeting Jello that night, Larry, was that um, it's like, I was, it was, there's been people like my sugar days and just like ever since, you know, it's like I meet people and it's sometimes you meet, it's just like, man, you met, you know, Mick Jagger. What was he like? I was like, oh man, he was great. He was really nice. And, uh, um, he's just very low key and like super nice. Just, just great. Hey, how was, uh, you know, what was, uh, what was Dave Roll like? Oh man, super friendly dude. Great. What was, uh, Jello Biafra like? And it's like, He's kind of a load. He's kind of a guy that, like, I was really excited to meet Jello as a punk rock kid, you know, turned semi adult, and realized this is the guy at the party that I now refer to as a punisher. Somebody that once they get their claws into you, you'll never, ever get away from them this is the type of person that you want to pretend that your phone is ringing and have to pick it up and walk away from this That's is like if someone came up to me and said hey if i if i get you away from jelly will you let me <laughs> kidneys as hard as i can i would say yeah yeah that's, <laughs> sure. uh, so that's what this picture is of is um 
is all of us right there. That's my favorite picture. Of those her. guys, were they all just hanging out there? Were they on some of them on the bill? That yeah, Tony was playing. No, they were playing San Francisco somewhere else. Tony was the bass player with They Might Be Giants at that time. And Tony, my man, is like a really like lovely person. Tony and I are still friendly. He owns a studio in New York where I've done a little work before. And um, Tony um, and Anton Fear were Bob's rhythm section on the Black Sheets of Rain and workbook tours. And um, Anton Fear had two reputations that everybody in rock and roll knew about, which was one is um, phenomenal world class drummer Two, apparently a rather difficult personality to get along with on a day to day basis on tour. Hmm. Thus, Bob had had enough. And Tony, because Tony's a really good dude. He knew because he told me that night after when we sat up on the hotel balcony and whatever rock and roll hotel in San Francisco we stayed in. And uh, it was the Phoenix. It was the Phoenix. And um, so um, Tony, he said, he said, you know, you're the perfect bass player for this band. He said, but I kind of, he said, I kind of regret how things ended with me and Bob. And I was like, Tony, Bob, so he talks, so he, he loves you. You know, it's like, I know. He said, but you know, it's like, Anton's my friend, you know, we've known each other since we were kids. And I, I said, I, I probably should have sided with Bob instead of Anton, but Tony's such a quality guy. He wasn't, he, even when everybody else tells him his best friend from high school is an asshole. <laughs> but yeah, but they were playing in San Francisco that same night. As I, I got to start wow. moving along because we're like 40 minutes in and I haven't yeah. really the late nineties yet. Um, but I want to know when, when you finished up the run with sugar, that's the kind of experience in life that could have made you change your mind. And made you think, no, I'm a rock star now. I'm gonna who's when bring on the next band. When's it gonna happen? But instead, you went back to Athens and opened up your own studio. Tell right. me, a well, you know, I'm the one. I'm the one that quit. Yeah, um, I remember that. Because um, I just needed to be at home with my family. I love Bob. I love the music, and I told him it's like I'll do it as long as you need me to. You never know somebody else's situation. You know, it's like I mean, Bob was fine, and he was just like, let's do this like next three four months, and we'll finish in Japan, and. Uh, so, and I encouraged him, I was like, God, you should get somebody else. You could sell a million records if you had somebody that would tour nonstop. You couldn't be seduced. No, um, I knew what I wanted to do, which is like my, you know, nobody lays in their deathbed and wishes they were more famous and, and, and had shitty relationship with their children. And uh, so, so, you know, that's what my priority always was. So I came back here and was freelancing and was those two years between opening the studio or quitting sugar and opening Chase Park was um, definitely some pretty tight margins for me. But fortunately, one of the great things Bob Mull did for me, in addition to giving me this tremendous opportunity and, and opening up his cool music to me, but um, was he connected me with a music publisher who gave me a publishing deal for my own songs. I didn't get any money in advance for it. I just got royalties off my music. But they did place that one of the guys there said, you know what? There's a new Katie Lang album. She's looking for songs. You should write something. He described me what she was looking for. And I was like, man, I just started this thing the other day. So I wrote this song and she put it on a record. And that yeah. fed my little people for a while and was my bridge. It was like 10 super famous songwriters and David Barbie. And so, um, what she knows, it's like, you know, I run into her every now and again. And I've told her, it's just like, you know, that you did feed the Barbie children for a good, good year. <laughs> most desperately and i'll never ever forget that as long you didn't know that when you picked my song you picked my song because you liked it but you should know that you did something that was good for other people that's awesome yeah she's great so um anyway we um 
And then, yeah, so I was just like scrambling my best. And I mean, I was making records everywhere I could. I mean, my schedule would be like, I'm in Athens at John Keene's Monday and Tuesday. I'm going to Atlanta to work in a gigantic fancy studio owned by Bobby Brown. I made a bunch of records down there. And then I'm going to Columbia, South Carolina to record on some dude's basement for two days and I'll be home. And I mean, it was just like place, 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 place. And finally, I was like, I've got to build my own place. And then so I built Chase Park in 1997. And now like hundreds and hundreds of records later, I'm, that was my temporary space. That was my temporary solution was that studio. It'll be 25 years, 25 years in May. And it seems like the most, the, the most enduring fruitful relationship you've had as a producer has been with the drive-by truckers. How did yeah, that I made them, them three times longer than George Martin made record with the Beatles. Nice. Hmm. How, did, how did you fall into that? Ass backwards, like always. Um, Patterson Hood was a sound guy at a local club, and I would go in there and record shows. And he was the greatest guy in the world. And he would—he didn't have his band yet, but he would talk about this band, the Drive By Truckers, in the third person as though they existed already. Huh. And I was kind of into that. I was like, man, this guy's a true believer. And I knew was learning a little bit of his family history as the son of David Hood, the man who's played on the five billion great records. And um, uh, and then Tony Eubanks, who owned this club, the Hi-Hat, said, hey, have you ever heard Patterson's songs? I was like, no, but I love that guy. He's a great guy. And he said, he's playing a solo show. You should come check it out. He's been doing these, like, whenever we don't have anybody to play. And he was like, oh, cool. The sound man plays his songs. And so... I went out and saw Patterson's set, which was a solo show with about 10 people there, maybe, and uh, maybe 10, including me, the bartender and the door person and the guy that owned the club. And he was playing material that would be like some of his early drive-by truckers material. And right away, you realize this guy is a fucking great songwriter. It's like, he's really, really got something. And so when I built Chase Park, Patterson loved studios, had family history, and he he hung drywall to um pay for for a studio time for their first record it did not do with me it did with one of my studio partners because he's a loyal dude and then the second one their their bass player had like a little recording rig they recorded at home and they mix it at the studio with my other partner and then i've done everything since then though it's like i mixed they made a live record that i mixed and then i mixed southern rock opera which they had recorded themselves in this building in birmingham and uh but eat but when i did those live mixes they, you know, I mean, I realized, man, I love working on this stuff. These songs are great, both their songs. And Cooley and Patterson are both like, he gets us more than anybody else does. Because, um, awesome. yeah, it's like the stuff that I grew up listening to. It's, it's like, yeah, it's like I understood. It's like, yeah, let people hear the guitars. You can hear them on, you know, a Rolling Stones record or a Neil Young record. It's like, and, um, so yeah that was a very fruitful relationship and our careers just kind of grew together and yeah it's like i've had great taste in friends you know bob mold john key it's like well now it seems like the things you do now and i'm going to fold in your work at university of georgia with this too that's right are really based on on sort of leaving a legacy and paying it forward you know you have your sons working with you at the studio you're educating generations of new musicians Right. Was that something you did on purpose or was it something that just sort of came out of what you were? Arguing? Yeah, it is both. Um, I suppose, you know, it's like I loved having my little people, you know, and I loved being a dad. I love having kids. I have, you know, great relationships with them, even as adults. Um, it didn't even suck when they were teenagers, but um, as bad as it could have. Impressive. And uh, but 
Um, yeah, I got roped into UGA. Um, I say that uh, kindly by George Fontaine, who owns New West Records, and he is a UGA grad. When the previous director of this program, music business program, left, he, I was his idea, and I was like, "That's insane! I can't do, I don't know anything about that." And he's like, "Barbie, you've always got, you know, you've always got interns at the studio. You're always teaching young people how to do things." True. And your coach little league and I watch you with your, you know, it's like you're used to organizing and teaching young people. And so did I do it intentionally? Yes. At the studio, once I had interns, I realized this most studios in the modern age are the guy in the place, which means you're responsible for doing all the work Two, um, that's all fine and good as what you do remains in style until you're tired of working. What happens to most people is uh, um, you, especially in a college town, especially in like an indie and like, you know, the bands I've worked with are like indie bands, punk bands, psych bands, Americana. But it's like in that vent, in that arena, it's just like, uh, again, days and confused, like Matthew McConaughey and the high school girls, me and the bands, I keep getting older and they all stay the same age. And so I was aware it's like, there's going to come a time where, I live in a world of 22 year old bands and I'm older, a lot older. Can they relate to me? Can I relate to them? Do I still? So I always was aware. It's like a little bit of self-preservation, but I've always believed a smaller piece of a bigger pie is preferable to me. Every time I share my knowledge with an intern and it's like my interns, it's like have gone on to have these phenomenal careers. And, um, I was, uh, at having some beers in Atlanta one night after this um, recording academy thing um, where, um, and I was at a table with uh, Ben Holst who owns a studio and has like a really like, like a, mostly he's gotten into like advertising related uh, music and he's a really brilliant guy. And then um, Ben Tanner who um, has a studio in Muscle Shoals and played with um, uh St. Paul and the Broken Bones, and then Matt Still is Elton John's engineer for like the last 30 years. And they all said, God, you know what we all have in common? We all used to be David Barbie's assistant. And I was oh. like, whoa. I'm like, I'm like Hub Kittle or one of those old school major league pitching coaches who like nobody knows but has just been like, so uh that's the first yeah. Hub Kittle reference you guys have had all day, Definitely. I bet. I think ever in my life. Yeah. I was gonna say it too. So um well, well along those lines as we kind of round out the discussion. Um yeah. As I remain the, the timekeeper usually on these, yeah, all right. but this is, no, this is great. But I, I do wonder, yeah, what, what do you, what does it feel like to walk around Athens these days? And you are kind of the, the legend now. You are that guy. So you, well, you know, it's, um, it, a grateful really, um, is how it feels. Um, yeah, I am. I mean, I've got a good deal going. It's like, I've worked on hundreds of records and my catalog boasts, the truckers and deer hunter and sunvolt and katie lang did one of my songs and i played in sugar and i do stuff with you know rem from you know the various packages of that from time to time and i got my studio and all these other cool people come in there and work and i have about 10 engineers that work in there and um i've got my uga thing going and i see my young people all moving into new things and i've got my uga grads all over the country in new york and la and nashville making a big impact in the music business it feels great it feels um but again i'm just like really grateful that I, people have given me an opportunity that uh, people trust me more than i trust myself that uh people uh haven't realized like 
what a backslider I really am and that I really just want to, I work hard because deep down inside, I want to get to a point where I can be lazy, but I don't think I'll ever actually get there. So um, I'm just, I just feel like grateful and lucky and just am mindful to keep on paying it forward with young people because um, they collectively and as individuals have like given me so much. And I'll, I'll tell you this, what relates back to this is Ben Tanner, who's the guy at Studio Muscle Shoals. Ben was my assistant at Muscle Sh- at uh, Fame and Muscle Shoals and Betty LeVette record we did in 2007. And I have a unusual ways of doing things in studios because I just have different ways of doing things. And uh, so I had these mics set up and Ben was really taken with my mic techniques on some things. And because uh, it was just different than like everybody else down there did. And he said, would it be okay with you if I use that technique? And I was like, he's I'll totally give you credit for it. I was like, how about this, Ben? I'll make a deal with you. You can use my techniques as long as you steal every idea that I've got and tell the world you invented. How about that? I don't care. You're not going to hurt me. I don't think it's possible. Um, you'll have your, because if the three of us were all to go into a studio and we all had engineering chops and we all were to produce the same bands with the same gear and the same song and the same equipment, everything. It would sound different because of this and this, and that's uh, just how it is. And so I've always been very open about stuff with young people because I just feel like people that are that are guarded and, and, and secretive and territorial, screw it. That's no way to live. It just seems like an awful way to live. And, uh, you know, it's like it's amazing. A love of what you do and a desire to just try and be like a remotely cool guy to other people (laughs) things work out so much better than trying to be a dick that's a good way to maybe round out the discussion i like that we should i I have a million more things to ask you but i'm not going to i'm i'm so thankful we'll see each other you can ask me him some other time i was just gonna say i'm so thankful to have this opportunity to talk to you about something other than stratomatic and baseball yeah i love talking (laughs) about stratomatic and baseball Um, yeah we'll be back at that Thanks so much for coming on, David. It was a great discussion. Thank you for having me, Larry. Christian, great to meet you. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh, so great. I had no idea what we were going to talk about. I told my wife, she said, what are you going to talk about? I was like, they're going to ask a question and I'm going to answer. Um, Before we go, do you have uh, anything you want to promote, uh, websites to go to, et cetera? Yes. Uh, My studio, Chase Park Transduction in athens georgia we do have a website chaseparktransduction.com we also of course have our kind of social media game going but i mercifully i'm about to have a new studio manager come on board and she knows what she's doing she's going to actually make it seem like i do because i noticed you have your own social media feed you just started a new one on instagram i noticed at fan devastation at at fan devastation right of course that can't be overlooked that in addition to my serious pursuits of music my genuine desire to teach young people at my alma mater, the University of Georgia. If you're interested in the music business, come see us. Uh, my love of coaching kids in baseball. I also love trolling anguished college football fans on social media. And I just had somebody give me the idea of making a coffee table book of a fan devastation and i have two book deal offers actually in place one of them said you know you can make any kind of book you want to and i'm actually thinking about approaching them and asking them, was like could could we do that could there be such a thing that's the most ridiculous thing i can think of so yeah well, if you need anyone to write the copy you know give me a call i'll do the yeah. one in the net. Uh, all right but we'll let you go 
Uh, this has been a, a fun, wide-ranging conversation. And uh, yeah. so now I'm going to go upstairs and eat some completely balanced meal in keeping with my Libraism. Hi, I'm Kevin Mazzarelli, and I'm a production manager and live sound engineer. Sound engineers aren't really engineers, but they are the, some of the most important people in the delivery of a live show. They can make it great or make it terrible. And I've witnessed and been part of both. I started my sound career in the late 90s in New York City at a club called CBGB's. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was a waitress there and I would hang out and bother the sound guys until ultimately they showed me the ropes and Hilly, the owner, and Micheline, the buyer, uh, agreed to let me mix some shows in the gallery space. At CB's, there were three stages. The main stage, the gallery stage, and there was a stage in the basement below the gallery where they made terrible pizza, and it was supposedly haunted by a ghost they named the janitor. CB's was a great place to learn because there was no shortage of shows or bands of all kinds. Uh, the main stage would mostly be metal or hardcore or punk. The gallery was mostly acoustic stuff, and the basement had dance and poetry. And once, uh, in the basement, they had a fundraiser for Ralph Nader, uh, I got to work one day, and Michelin asked me to go downstairs and turn on the very small PA and do sound for whatever bands were playing for the benefit. Well, the bands ended up being Patti Smith, Jay Maskus, and Mike Watt, Loudon Wainwright III, and Ed Sanders from the Fugs. I, <laughs> I barely held on, but was able to mix all of them on a tiny Mackie console with three busted-ass mics and a DI box. Hilly had a desk in the entrance of the club, and he would sit there all day long. Um, one afternoon, I had to go ask him a question. I walked in, and there was a band rehearsing on the main stage, and, and they were playing that song, Cult of Personality. And I said to Hilly, is that a Living Color cover band? And he said, no, that's in Living Color. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, wow, right, yeah. I really am in New York and at CB's. I was just surviving when I worked there, really. I, uh, but after about six months... That was the first time I realized I was good at doing sound. And it was while I was mixing a band called Idaho, ironically enough, during, but it was during CMJ Festival. I was using whatever effects I had and some compression and some EQ, and it sounded great. And it was finally fun. And I was ready to move on to another venue and, and stretch my legs. And I got a job. I got hired at the Mercury Lounge. Uh, the Mercury Lounge is on Houston Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, back in the 90s and early aughts, Mercury was a very special place. It was what you'd call a showcase venue. A lot of bands would come through uh, for their first show in New York or play for record labels and A&R folks, like Showcase. I remember the week after September 11th, we were all quarantined to our neighborhoods. And for those who, who, of us who were living in the East Village, Mercury opened for a night and Perry Farrell DJed. It felt weird, but... It was, it was great. When I started at Mercury, I was just one of the sound people on the roster, and it was quite a scene at the time. I mean, regulars on that stage then were The Strokes, uh, The Ravenettes, The Yaya Yaz, Liars, The Von Bondies, um, Nicole Atkins. Um, it was great. Um, eventually, I'd become the production manager of Mercury, but that's, uh, that's a little bit later. When I was one of the rotating sound people at Merc, I also did sound at Brownies, and a club called North Six. Brownies was a small venue owned by a guy named Mike Studo, and it was located in the north side of the East Village, right off Tompkins Square Park. This place was known for its curated shows. They put together such cohesive bills. Interpol played there a lot, and my first shift at Brownies was was the Brian Jonestown Massacre, and it was an epic and terrifying shit show. It was insane. That's for another story. I remember mixing Calvin Johnson there. I remember 
remember mixing Rilo Kylie there. Two former house sound guys there are Kevin McMahon and Harley Zinker. Both are legendary people and have amazing careers. Um, uh, I think James Murphy from LCD Sound System did sound there early on too. What a great place. North Six uh, was the first real indie rock venue in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, a lot of my good friends worked there. It was very DIY. There were bleachers in the back, and on top of the bleachers is where they put the soundboard. And uh, it had a very powerful sound system without any of the bells and whistles you would want to mix a band. It was all power. I saw and mixed some of the most amazing shows there. And at the time, Williamsburg was not the neighborhood it is now. It was pretty grimy. I think the best show that I mixed there, uh, the lineup was... Thurston Moore, Solo, Wolf Eyes, Deerhoof, and Lightning Bolt. When when Deerhoof played their last, the last note of their set, uh, a light bulb went on on the floor where Lightning Bolt was set up, and they tore into their first song, and the whole place exploded like a popcorn popper. People were climbing uh, the steel pillars and jumping onto the stage to get a better look at the band. Um, and I, I ran up to the stage to move people off and found myself standing next to Thurston Moore, and I remember he looked at me and he said, This is fucking epic. A couple other shows that I mixed at North Six were My Morning Jacket on an Easter Sunday. There were about 10 people in the crowd, but they played to the rafters. It, they were incredible. Um, and I mixed, I think, the last two Elliot Smith shows that he ever played in New York before he died. Oh, and they filmed the opening sequence to the movie School of Rock at North Six. Um, it was cool to watch that happen. At that time, I also worked at a, uh, briefly worked at a club called Tonic, and that was deep in the Lower East Side. Um, it was an avant jazz venue and it was owned by uh, saxophonist John Zorn. Uh, I got to mix him and Mike Patton together once with someone from the boredom. So it, it was uh, like on a New Year's Day show. That was a cool place. But in, uh, in 2006, I was asked to be the production manager of the Mercury Lounge and I happily accepted. Um, I was back at Merc. Uh, but that was the time when they started booking two shows per day. So I would have two sets of headliners. We would sound check both shows in reverse order. We would open doors, run the early show, kick everyone out, boot the early show bands back into their vans and trailers out onto a busy Houston street, set up the next show, open doors again, and do it all over. It was insane, and it was relentless. Um, we did this often. And Mercury was only closed two days a year, and I did this for nine years straight. I think I totally lost my mind, but... I got to work with almost every band on the planet and saw or mixed some incredible stuff like Echo and the Bunnymen, MGMT, Solange, Frightened Rabbit, Disclosure, The National, Fits in the Tantrums, John Doe, The Germs with Pat Smear, and some actor in the place of Darby Crash. Uh, but most importantly, I met my beautiful, amazing wife at the Mercury Lounge. I was just in New York this last December uh, and I hung out there and it, it still feels like home. In 2014, I left the Mercury Lounge to pursue some freelance work. I toured with the Julie Ruin on and off over the next couple of years. And with them, I did tours in the U.S., Canada, Europe, Pitchfork Festival, Capitol Hill Block Party, and we did Late Night with Seth Meyers. Uh, they were so cool. I really liked everyone in that band, and they're such good people. At the time, I also worked at Babies All Right, Music Hall of Williamsburg, and Rough Trade. Rough Trade was an awesome venue. It was it was in the back of the Rough Trade record store, but it had a great stage and a great PA. I got to mix Car Seat Headrest and Band of Horses there, and um, I got to watch television play there. 
And I also watched uh, Sturgill Simpson play a set there. That was a great place. This is also when I dipped my toes into corporate AV work in New York, meaning, you know, corporate AV means 98% of the time you're putting a lav mic on a person's lapel and they give a keynote speech and you make way more money than in music. But I did a couple of music shows within the corporate realm. <laughs> uh, I was on the audio team at Michael Jordan's birthday party in 2015 in a warehouse near Wall Street. And there were three stages in that warehouse. My stage wasn't a stage, actually. It was a giant white staircase that was built for the party. Uh, and it was built for Ariana Grande. And we flanked that staircase with the white Adamson PA. It was super slick. Um, it took a few days to set up. And then our set was like 15 minutes long. <laughs> the second stage was for some acoustic music in a lounge. And the third stage was, was for none other than Prince. I got to watch Prince play all of his hits in front of 500 people. It was incredible. The other corporate AV music gig, one of the other corporate AV music gigs I did was the last state dinner of the Obama administration. It was in a tent on the front lawn of the White House. and Demi Lovato played a set and then President Obama and the First Lady both gave speeches. That was quite incredible. That, that was very cool to be a part of. Um, in, in 2014, my wife and I had a baby and we decided it was time to leave New York um, we ended up in Boise, Idaho. We wanted to be out west, and I was hired as a supervisor and sound engineer at a Boise AV company uh, that primarily did corporate jobs. Little did I know that I'd be on a plane once a month flying all over the place, working with HP and DreamWorks Animation and Canon, to name a few. Uh, I made a ton of great friends, and I learned a lot. But after four years, I was so burned out from the travel and doing the corporate-style work. And then COVID hit. And everything came to a halt, and I lost my job for the first time uh, ever. Um, I didn't think this at the time, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me professionally. I needed a break from the grind of what I'd been doing, and it was nice to take some time to sleep in and be with my family, um, wiping down groceries. <laughs> uh I was doing some virtual AV work here and there, and then the universe beamed me an opportunity to get back into music. And as of August 2021, uh, I was hired by the Duck Club as their head of production. And this also includes production coordinating for Treefort Music Fest. They are hands down the coolest, kindest people I've ever worked with. And it's so awesome to be part of the Boise music community, truly. And that's, uh, that's my journey up to this date. All right, everyone, put down that glass of iced tea, get up off your rocking chair, get off the front porch, story time is over. That was fantastic. Uh, I am fortunate enough that I get an opportunity to listen to David Barbie tell stories. Uh, this was your first time. And I get a chance to listen to Mr. Kevin Mazzarelli tell stories, and uh, he spins a fine yarn as well. So it's been a great time for storytelling. Because of that, we're going to cut out uh, quickly here. Uh, we don't want to waste any more of your time listening to us tell stories. Nope. So let's just thank who needs to be thanked. And let's let you get you to say your favorite two last names in the whole world. And two of my favorites are Brett Battistane, top five, maybe top three. Oh, yeah. Jared Bostrom. Once I figured out it's not Bostrom and it's Bostrom, he's the boss. <laughs> and he goes by Manimal, by the way. We could start calling him Manimal. So this is Manimal um, in the NBA. It wasn't the big Birdman guy, was it? Was, you know, I can't remember who the Manimal was, but there were definitely... Denver. The Manimal played for Denver. Oh. What a great nickname. 
Well, maybe it was Jared. Maybe it was Jared's dad. Jared. I don't know. <laughs> Animal, the Animal Junior, Jared Bostrom, um, does our editing, and Mr. Brett Battlestain does some editing for us as well, and all, fills in all the blanks and does the production for Eavesdrop, E-A-S-E-Drop. Go check them out. Their podcast studio is awesome. And, Rosen, where do we find so forward? As for us, if you'd like to interact with us, you can go to our Facebook group, Facebook page, uh, or you can go to the Instagram at Story Forward. You can go to Twitter or Instagram at Story Forward and tell us what you think, please. Well, <laughs> within reason. That's <laughs> <laughs> within reason. Rate us. Please don't argue. Go to the uh, iTunes, give us a rating of five stars. Five. Give us a nice review that refers to something specific about an episode you've just heard. About there that. we go. Well, also, most notably, what we want to do, we want to keep the story moving forward, sir. 